Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on The Art of Range are Jerry Benson and Mel Asher. They both have a, a, a long and sordid history in rangelands restoration and management and have become established as practitioners in that field. And as I've said repeatedly here, in my opinion, practitioners are people who are practicing the art of rangelands management through application of the science and whose livelihoods depend on, on making good decisions. If you're in the world of restoration work and your restoration projects repeatedly fail, uh, you won't be doing that work <laughs> for very long. So the fact that uh, Jerry and Mel are still doing this speaks a bit to their to their success in the real world, which I think is is pretty important. Uh, Jerry and Mel, welcome. Thank you, Tip. Thanks, Tip. Um, let's just take a minute to have both of you do a bit of self-introduction and describe. Uh, I, 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 people are probably going to assume that you haven't been doing whatever you're doing for your entire lives. So what was the, what was your um, personal or career pathway that, that led you to what you're doing right now? Um, so I am a transplant to the Intermountain inner Northwest. I'm originally from Michigan. Um, I went to graduate school in Texas at Texas A&M, studied um, grassland restoration, and um, moved up to the Pacific Northwest with my husband. And I've been working in central Washington since 2004, um, starting with the uh, Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife as a rangeland ecologist, and then uh, more recently for uh, BFI Native Seeds with Jerry Benson um, for the last 12 years, working a lot on um, ecological restoration projects, kind of focusing on shrub step and, and also branching out into riparian work. And uh, just recently um, also started uh, management of Derby Canyon Natives, which is a um, nursery in Peshastin, uh, just outside of Wenatchee. Um, so I'll be kind of um, playing both the role of, of a, an ecologist and a plant propagationist uh, for, the, for the near future. And you, Jerry? Uh, I've been in Washington my entire life, and so um, I haven't had the opportunity for um, places like Texas and stuff like that. All I know is uh, shrub step and, and forest ecology in the Northwest. But most of my uh, uh, work started out in, uh, as a um, uh, biologist with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, doing hydroelectric studies. And then that ev evolved into um, uh, rangeland management and grazing lease management and agricultural lease management. So um, my first uh, effort at actually undertaking a quote unquote real, at least a, a pseudo real uh, restoration project 
was in uh, 1976. So uh, I've had a lot of experience in, in fortunately, being able to do monitoring of that project uh, every 20 years since then. So that, uh, to me, adds uh, quite a bit of opportunity to see what how things progress ecologically uh, with the different type of plantings and planting conditions and our, our understanding of plant communities. 1976 was a good year. That was the year yeah. I became a twinkle. A twinkle, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, we had a fire out on the Saddle Mountains uh, there between Royal City and Mattawa and uh, burned up about 20-some uh, uh, thousand acres, and we were able to drill seed about 4,200 of it. So uh, that was my first uh, endeavor at finding out what can go wrong and what works. Uh, well, mostly what can go wrong in the case of, a, of an attempt at restoration. Yeah. I've, I've been working for WSU Extension as a range and livestock specialist since 2003, uh, not quite 20 years. And one of the more common questions that landowners of all shapes and sizes ask is, how can I improve the plant community, change the plant community, you know, grow something different than what's there right now? And it's a, it's a broad question. And <laughs> as with a lot of things in rangeland ecology, the answer is, well, it depends. And, you know, your job as a restoration ecologist is to help people figure out, uh, suggest the things that it depends on and get some ideas back from them about what they're hoping to accomplish. And, you know, this, people want just a seed mix and they figure they're ready to go, but you know, objectives with what you intend to do with the land, how much money you want to put into it, um, you know, what the what the soil potential is. There's an awful lot of questions that, that go into what could be done, what is the range of possibilities for a given site, uh, as well as maybe what should be done, which depend mm -hmm. quite a bit on the person who's um, wanting to make some improvements. Yes, yeah, for so sure. I'm, I'm curious what your experience has been. Have have most of your customers been, uh, you know, larger entities like agencies that are doing restoration work, where where you have a pretty wide latitude to make suggestions, or do you often get called in essentially as a consultant to say uh, what could be done and what should be done here? Um, that's exactly the spectrum. We deal with the person that wants five pounds of seed or we would deal with the person that wants 50,000 pounds of seed. And, and quite often the questions are uh, uh, for either of those situations are very similar. You know, what can we do? What about our cheatgrass issues? What about uh, weed control? Uh, how are we going to get the seed on the ground? Can we just fly it on? Can, do we have to do something to get it incorporated into the soil? The, uh, the list of questions and site-specific questions goes on pretty extensively. Yeah. One of the reasons for this particular interview is, uh, is that a, a colleague of mine, Andy Prelyberg, has a, a small pot of money through the Renewable Resource Extension Act to do some outreach on fire rehabilitation with small acreage landowners, both forested landowners and uh, range landowners. 
And so we're we're doing a, a few episodes specifically on uh, post-fire rehabilitation in the Intermountain West and more broadly the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, if, if, if somebody were to come to you that had, you know, say a section, 640 acres of, of rangeland, fires never burned on boundary lines, but uh, <laughs> if, if somebody had several hundred acres of burned up rangeland from the fires a couple of years ago, and they want to know, should I plant something back? And what should I plant back? What would be the first questions that you would ask them? Well, Mel has been working quite extensively with the Douglas County fires of the last couple of years there, the Pearl Hill fire in particular, and uh, uh, the Beecher fire over there. So, Mel, why don't you, you've dealt extensively with uh, uh, BLM on this and WDFW. Why don't you toss, uh, toss out a response on that? Sure. Well, I think the um, the most critical thing to look at um, first and foremost is what the fire intensity looked like on the ground. Um, and there's just really no um, other way to do it other than just going back out, going out in the field and doing a thorough um, reconnaissance of the site. Um, you can use aerial imagery from before the fire to kind of highlight areas that may have burned with a higher intensity due to um, greater fuels. Um, and in Sagebrush Step, you're primarily looking for areas where there was high shrub density. Um, and so you can kind of focus in on those areas and then you need to just go out in the field and look and kind of assess what the ground conditions look like and see if it did burn at a high enough intensity that treatments are warranted or needed or would be successful. Um, because, you know, shrub step did evolve with, you know, some fire. And so a lot of the species are resistant to fire. They have the ability to re-sprout. You know, there's notable ex exceptions to that, of course, you know, big sagebrush. Um, you know, bitter brush uh, often doesn't re-sprout, um, but a lot of the species do. And so uh, I think the most important thing to do is to take a look at what the fire intensity did to the landscape and what treatment is really needed. So when you say you're looking for places, one of the questions is, are there places that had sufficient sagebrush density yep. that, that then it burned hot enough that there's likely uh, perennial plant mortality? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right. Or perennial plant mortality, or, you know, if there was a cheatgrass understory, um, if there was a dense enough sagebrush overstory, oftentimes it will do some pretty decent seed, seed bank depletion of the cheatgrass, um, which mm. will allow you to kind of have that, that opening to do some seeding. Um, so yeah, I, that's one of the most important things to, to look for is, is pre-fire, brush density and, and fire intensity. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's basically, it creates kind of an opening, um, a niche, open niche that you can, you know, then work with in terms of seeding. So say that a situation had light to moderate shrub density, you know, whatever that might mean, 10 to <laughs> say 35% canopy cover, and it had a healthy population of perennial grasses before the fire 
uh, in those situations where you do a site visit and determine that there was not a lot of perennial plant, perennial grass mortality, you would leave it alone? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the most part, you know, depending on the goals of the landowner, you know, if, for example, they're highly concerned about sage grouse habitat and it looks like there's a greater landscape level depletion of sagebrush seed sources, like what you saw with the Pearl Hill fire because it was so expansive, then you could contemplate replanting sagebrush or seeding sagebrush. But um, an overall seed mix that included, you know, grasses, forbs, everything, that that wouldn't be something that we would recommend in that situation. Mm-hmm. What if the pre-fire plant community did have a significant component of invasive annual grass, whether that's cheatgrass or ventanata or <laughs> um, medusa head, then what would you recommend? So that would depend on um, how, again, how, how hot the fire was. Um, in a lot of situations, you get a pretty good removal of all of the litter layer. And, and that is an opportunity if the landowner is is willing to do some sort of pre-emergent style herbicide treatment and then um, either watch it or plan on following up immediately like the next uh, year with uh, seeding. So we use um, a couple of herbicides, Plateau and Landmark XP, as kind of like a one-year treatment. And so They'd only work if there's very little litter on the surface. Um, I found that they are intercepted by litter really easily, and so they're not as effective. But after a fire, you can apply them, and they're really good at controlling cheatgrass and a lot of the other annual invasives for about one year. And so you can apply them in the fall right after the fire, and then the next fall, there should be enough seed bank depletion uh, to allow seeding um, grasses and forbs. Um, there's another herbicide that we're just starting to work with. It's called Esplanade or Rejuvra. And that you know might have the potential to be used in a similar way with a slightly longer um, kind of fallowing or treatment period. Um, but we're kind of in the early stages of that. It appears to be effective at controlling cheatgrass for at least two years, maybe three or four, depending on the rate. So um, that one is, we're we're just con- starting to work with that one, but that's another uh, potential herbicide that uh, will hopefully be coming online. Um, right now, they seem to be using it a lot in areas where the um, herbaceous layer is kind of only semi-degraded. It hasn't been fully converted to, you know, invasive dominance and, you know, there's, so there's still enough perennial bunch grasses to allow some recovery. That seems to be where it's being used um, right now. That's kind of the focus of that herbicide. If there's a, a, a thin or a, a light, a low-density population of perennial plants, perennial grasses, uh, is there any particular threshold for a given plant community where you would say if you have fewer than, you know, say one plant per square meter, then you should seed. And if you have, if you have less than that, you should seed. If you have more than that, there's likely sufficient plant material there to, to recolonize the site. Any, 
because a lot of times, you know, you have fires that burn in a mosaic pattern. You've got, you know, pre-fire variability in terms of the species composition and uh, the density of the plant community. Uh, it's not very often that where you have uniform conditions across <laughs> a large area. Under what circumstances that where where is that that borderline? Where's the line between to seed or not to seed? That is such a good question, and uh, I mean i i wouldn't I wouldn't wager you know on a specific plant density um, because you know the the appropriate density at any site is going to be so variable. But I think I would look at it, you know, through the lens of how much invasive growth was there before the fire. You know, if you look at the imagery pre-fire and you can get like a good May image and you can see, you know, red across a large portion of the landscape indicating that there's a lot of cheatgrass or, you know, there's a lot of invasive grass growth on the site um, I think that would be a more important threshold than plant density, um, just because that's mm-hmm. so variable. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, you might be on a, a music site where you you would need, um, I don't know, three or four plants per square meter for it to be a functional plant community, or you could be on a dry southerly facing hillside where you know one or two plants is sufficient. Um, I I like to look at it, you know, in terms of how much invasive um, growth was there um, that was allowed to persist because the natives' uh, population was suppressed. Um, I don't know, Jerry. Do you have anything to add to that? Well, you're saying pretty much exactly my thoughts. Is is that the uh, the nature of the site w- to whether you need uh, one plant per square meter or five plants per square meter is so determined by the type of the soil, the aspect of the slopes, the uh, precipitation zone that you're in, the elevation you're at. You know, if you're down uh, along the Columbia River by Priest Rapids, why uh, one good plant per square meter is an abundant stand. If you're up on uh, Table Mountain, uh, North Ellensburg, why you might need five or six plants per square meter to have a reasonably good stand to be able to control the site relative to the invasive potential. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's a tough one because it is, it is so, um, it just takes so much experience to really tease out what exactly, you know, would be appropriate for the site to begin with. It just takes a lot of looking at, you know, uh, reference plant communities across the area to just to get an eye for what it should look like. This is uh, so critical for us because this is where sort of where the uh, the research people that do their specific studies, uh, you know, uh, at the university level or whatever, and the you might say the mechanics of the art form of of uh, establishing the picture. Uh, we work on that transition line between the researchers with their uh, uh, microplot studies versus the the reality of what the soil and the rocks and everything are like for us to be able to uh, get out there. So we're kind of the mixing bowl of, uh, of science and application. And which, uh, interestingly, there's really hardly anybody else 
in the Western United States attempts that mixing bowl process. Yeah. And, you know, in, in trying to do clean science, the whole idea is that you're holding everything constant except <laughs> a variable yeah. that you're trying to manipulate and then see what happens. And that's extraordinarily difficult in the real world, you know, in natural resources research. Yep. And so I think this is why we say that a person is practicing medicine or yeah. uh, practicing law. It's because pra a law degree. Exactly. Practicing yeah, you're practicing restoration. restoration. Yep. And, uh, and you know, um, you, you never, you never get it absolutely perfect, especially you can do perfect, but you can't do perfect twice in a row. <laughs> right. So that's, uh, and that's where the experience, you know, I probably, I've been doing this for over 50 years. And, uh, and so consequently, I've seen a lot of things that looked like it was going to be great, and it didn't. And I've seen some things that could have been pretty questionable. They worked out just fine. So, you, you know, this is uh, kind of that art form stuff. Yeah. Going back to invasive annual grasses a bit, I've, I've seen situations where uh, there are, say, cheatgrass plants in between established blue bunch wheatgrass. And I want to say I've seen some research results showing that blue bunch wheatgrass and maybe uh, bottle brush squirrel tail were two of the species that do a better job than other perennial native bunch grass species in suppressing cheatgrass in between plants. Uh, and and I've, I've seen scenarios where side by side, you've got a stand of blue bunch wheatgrass and a soil site that has no blue bunch wheatgrass and is full of cheatgrass. And inside of the blue bunch wheatgrass, you have many fewer cheatgrass plants. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's the case for most perennial grasses or are there some perennial plants that are more effective in out-competing cheatgrass, at least in our precipitation zones? Well, in that context, you opened a large can of worms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've found that the more, that our more local genetics on say blue bunch wheatgrass, Sandberg bluegrass, Idaho fescue, those kind of species, even prairie june grass and stuff, the more local the genetics, the, high, the better the suppression rate of invasives. The more disconnected the, uh, the genetics are, uh, whether it's uh, miles or elevation or precipitation, whatever combination of things uh, are the drivers, uh, really affect what the um, uh, competitiveness is with the uh, with the species uh, with the invasives. Whether, like I said, whether it be cheatgrass. Cheatgrass is kind of our benchmark one because we have so much of it. But we've worked on projects in Oregon and Idaho where we have uh, a lot of the ventnata issues and the um, uh, medusa head issues. So cheatgrass is you might say the tip of the iceberg and you get to these other species and the problem gets much deeper. I'd like to take you and show you some of the uh, restoration projects we've done uh, around over central Washington here and what the timeline is from being predominantly cheatgrass to being virtually cheatgrass free. And we've done that with having the genetically appropriate species 
available to plant so that they are more competitive than the cheatgrass is. Yeah. Um, I have been a little bit, I guess, skeptical of private landowners undertaking restoration projects, probably because as somebody whose job it is to help move people toward more sustainable management Mm -hmm. of rangelands, particularly grazing management, it's been my contention, I think that's pretty well founded in research, that it's much, much more effective and cost-effective to prevent a plant community from tipping over this ecological threshold into a degraded but stable state than it is to fix it once you've got it there. Um, Absolutely. And But that's not to preclude the benefits of, of being able to do restoration. But if you have to make a living on an acre of rangeland and the costs of restoration are significant, you know, it could be 15, 20 years before before you see the benefits of that income. And so I'm ordinarily trying to push people toward, you know, protecting the productive potential of the plant community they've got instead of trying to manipulate it. But of course, once you've got something that's uh, dysfunctional or <laughs> sort of functional, but degraded and not changing, th- there, are, there are good reasons uh, to try to do something different there. For sure. And, um, you know, we deal principally from the standpoint of uh, Benson Farms and BFI Native Seeds. Uh, We run several different entities within our business, and restoration is part of it. Seed production is part of it. Uh, Live plants, nursery stuff is part of it. Uh, On the ground, uh, we have our own seed processing facilities and warehousing and stuff like that. So, So we have pretty much the full gamut of uh, of stuff for everything from BLM rangeland rehab from that's going to be continually grazed to stuff that is not going to be grazed. We try to work mostly with what will be ungrazed, and we have some private mm-hmm. individuals. Kind of interesting that we actually have a somewhat small cadre of individuals that are focused on seeing a quality plant community more than any economic return. But they're, right. they're people that obviously uh, uh, are not, um, uh, you might say, living paycheck to paycheck. Sure. I think it's interesting, too, that sometimes these hot fires represent a good opportunity to replace a stable but somewhat degraded plant community, where now you've got everything cleaned off, you've got the you know, thick thatch layers cleaned off and there's the potential to put something back into it. That's going to be significantly more, you know, functional, diverse and productive than what was there before. Can you speak to that a bit? Hey Mel, why don't you give him a little bit of our work that we've been doing with BLM up in uh, central Douglas County. Sure. Um, Yeah. So yeah, the hot, the hot fires that you get, um, generally from the presence of dense shrub um, pre-fire is a fantastic opportunity to get um, other species, desirable species established. Um, So um, under the best of circumstances, that's a, a process that you can undertake immediately after the fire, you know, the fall after a fire 
and you can go into a site um, with a diverse mix of grasses and flowers and shrubs and drill seed um, right behind the fire. And we're able to do that, um, unfortunately, very rarely, um, mainly because of, um, I guess, clearances that need to be um, that need to be uh, cleared before that sort of work can um, proceed um, on, on a lot of federal lands. Um, but that's that's the ideal scenario if if you can get it um, right behind a fire when the ground is bare and um, there's you know that kind of soft ash layer that you can um, just drill seed right into. That's one of the most successful um, ways to get. Uh, native plants established behind a fire. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of the elephants in the room with restoration projects, especially with smaller scale landowners, private landowners is uh, I've seen quite a bit of the, I've seen projects that have been done with rangeland drills. I've talked with Jim Truax about, (laughs) you know, their, their technology behind drills, and, and have seen what you guys have done with that. And I've seen a lot of broadcast seedings that w- were near total failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not all that easy for a private landowner sometimes to get their hands on a rangeland drill. Are, is drilling seed the, the only method that you recommend? Or do you sometimes, are, are there pathways to doing a broadcast seeding that can still be somewhat effective? Yeah, we we actually use a number of um, seeding methods. Um, for sure, drilling is is our preferred method. But um, you know, there was a site that we uh, seeded this uh, past fall that was just so rocky. Um, there was so so many boulders that we didn't mm. want to bring our drills into it, and so we opted to have the seed float on with a helicopter, and then we went over the top of it um, and lightly harrowed it into the ground. I think what's really critical in our precipitation zone is getting the seed a little bit covered, but not Mm -hmm. too deep. And so Mm -hmm. I think broadcast seedings can be incredibly successful if they can be followed up with a harrowing or a packing or some sort of ground disturbing treatment that covers the seed just a little bit. Um, native seeds are really uh, finicky when it comes to the proper placement, the proper depth in the soil. Um, so they just like to be just a little bit under the soil surface. But if they're just right at the soil surface um, and sitting on top, then uh, they're just subject to drying out and wind. And it's just not a good environment for germination. And so, yeah, it's just really critical to get them just a little bit covered by the soil. Um, that's, but there's ways to do that beyond drilling. Drilling is great because you've got, you know, the technology in terms of depth bands to really precisely place it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's really why it's so ideal. Um, so when we do go with broadcasting, we typically increase the seeding rate a bit to account for some of the seeds being left on the surface and maybe not being buried or maybe being buried too deep. Um, there's definitely ways that you can mitigate um, not being able to drill by following up with some sort of treatments. You know, when folks call our office and they want to seed like an 
acre lawn um, at their house and they have absolutely no access to any agricultural equipment. It's really, <laughs> it's really challenging to coach them, but you know, there's ways that you can do it. You know, you can get a section of chain link fence um, and, drag, yeah. and drag it around um, with an ATV or, you know, right. um, but you, there just has to be some amount of incorporation of the seed into the soil for it to be really successful. It just it just dries out too quickly otherwise. Yeah, I've seen chain or um, uh, railroad ties used for drag. So the problem there is that it it grabs a pile of dirt and then dumps it and then grabs another pile of dirt and then dumps mm-hmm. it. And you have these bands where you have some loose soil with seed inside of it. I'm curious too about timing. Uh you know, with regard to getting proper seed coverage, uh, it's been said that the the timing of a rain dance is really critical. <laughs> it still we're, is. We're seeding up. <laughs> tell people that's right. You want to put the seed on right before, say, the first snow or the first rain of the fall, so that uh, you don't have the seeds exposed for a long period of time or perched on top of the soil where they could get picked up by. Uh, granivores and birds and rodents and things. But what's your recommendation for, can that make a difference? And to what extent is it useful to try to hit uh, a narrow window of time right before, say, the first snowfall? Well, I would say that as a company, we we don't have the luxury of trying to hit the exact right um, timing with all of our projects because we're just trying to get through them in, mm-hmm. you know, a somewhat condensed field season. And so um, I don't think that there is an exact time that's perfect for seeding. If you can, you know, follow the kind of the the groundwork that I laid out with, you know, in terms of getting it, it flown on and getting it lightly covered, um, you're not as uh, susceptible to those issues. Um, it definitely needs to be uh, sometime in the fall. That's um, typically, you know, recommended to be a dormant season um, seeding in our area, which means um, that the nights are cold enough um, that the seed is unlikely to sprout over the winter. And so that's typically like the last part of October and then onward until the ground is frozen or there's, you know, snow on the mm-hmm. ground. So that's typically, you know, part of October, all of November, and maybe a week or two in December, depending on the winter. So um, I think that's a pretty a pretty broad window I think you can be successful in. Now, if you're just shooting for just flying the seed on and, you know, trying to get it right onto the surface underneath the snow, right before a snowstorm, I've, I mean, I've heard that, um, you know, from several different people, but practically speaking, it's just, it's very hard to implement. Yeah, I don't know, Jerry, that's a really, you can yeah, probably tough, that. That's a really tough, uh, you might say, not hold the jump through. Uh, it, uh, reality is, is that if you can get your seed on reasonably well distributed between, say, the 10th of October and the 10th of December, that's a pretty good size window. And if you yeah. drill seed it, that gives you uh, an A number one opportunity. If you harrow seed it, that's another one. If you seed and pack, that's another one. Those are all uh, uh, opportunities to increase your likelihood of success. And and for us, why 
um, the exact date is uh, is really it's more of getting the methodology of the uh, of the process right rather than hitting the exact right date. Yeah, and and making sure that the site is well prepared yeah. and able to, um, you know, have have a a seeding, you know, succeed because there isn't a lot of competing um, weed growth. I think that's that's probably way more critical than than the exact timing. So yeah, one thing that yeah. uh, uh, you were mentioning a little bit ago and that we've found is quite critical is that if you get it on a little too early and you get moisture, all those uh, soil born insects become your big uh, consumers. The birds and the mice and stuff like that, uh, they don't have near the impact that the insects, the weevils and, and uh, seed, um, um, anyway, seed consuming insects can really injure uh, a seeding. And that mostly occurs if you get it seeded a little too early and you get seed on the mm-hmm. surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, so yeah, we've seen the ants and we've seen the mice and we've seen all of those sorts of things. But in terms of a, uh, if the site is right, those uh, and you get your, you don't get on too early. Why um, you can be pretty, you can pretty well count on success. Yeah, one factor in seeding site preparation that I've seen go wrong is excessive seedbed preparation oh. <laughs> where absolutely you know people think they're farming it up like a cornfield yep. and if you end up you know say somebody this is not common on rangeland but you know sort of in this middle zone where there's sort of a transition between rocky rangeland that i would consider you know non-arable and um you know a, a slightly more mesic site that has deeper soil better soil texture where you could conceivably run equipment through it and uh, sort of cultivate it. I have seen a number of seeding projects where somebody tried to disc it and then put seed down on a, a fluffy seed bed, and those don't work. In you fact, saw a pretty low success uh, rate there, I would say. Correct, <laughs> especially for smaller seeded species. Yeah. Ab Kern took me out one time to a Timothy seeding. This was a hayfield that was going to be irrigated, but still – in an irrigated hayfield where they've got modern equipment, uh, this Timothy seed had been put down. And I think Timothy has something like 1.2 million seeds per pound. They're little. And the only place where the seeds took were in the places where the the wheel tracks from the machine that went over it packed it down. And, and everything else was a total a total loss. The seeds came up and they immediately died. But in the places where there was a firm really firm seed bed underneath that had been packed down by the chevron pattern of the big rubber tires. Uh, that's where the seeds took. That's a very, very common situation. Uh, we just, uh, I was working with a fellow up by Harrington in Doug, in Lincoln County there. And uh, he had moderately good soil, pretty good quality soil, just a lot of rock and stuff. And he spent uh, hours and hours uh, disking and picking rocks and disking and picking rocks and going over it and over it. He was going to make this into a beautiful field, but it was so soft that there was no hope for him to get uh, a grass stand on it. 
Right. So, but he picked a lot of rocks. Yeah. Uh, thinking of, of instructions for ensuring project success, you're in the business of doing restoration. And to some extent, I realize you can just sell seed to people, but in projects that you actually take on, it seems like the reputation of the business somewhat depends on the success of those projects, which in turn depends on an owner or a manager following your recommendations uh, for what to do with the thing after the seed has gone down. Do you only take on a seeding project if someone has a commitment to following your protocols? Mm, Pretty much. If uh, if okay. you know if you're not committed or you uh, are wanting to uh, oh we want to try this and but if uh, you know if we run out of money well that's it and so on and so forth we prefer to stay away from those kinds of situations uh, and and we always stay away from the ones where they want to graze it within a, a few years it takes right years mm-hmm. for these things to become established and to be you know I say. Uh, sustainable and uh, and pre- uh, producing seed uh, that will reoccupy uh, the site also so you know right. uh, we try to stay away from the uh, the ones that you might say you got a lot of uh, ifs and ands about them right uh, so one of your clear recommendations is to not graze it for a few years until the the plants are well established and have been producing seed and presumably have some new starts. Yeah, what other recommendations do you make for say aftercare? Well, weed management of course uh, is always part of it. But once uh, we've tended to find that of course with the things like cheatgrass, that if you've got the, the right uh, pieces of the puzzle, the cheatgrass is pretty easily uh, um, displaced. So, you know, that's uh, for us, that's the bottom line is being able to have a healthy community and displace invasives. So you would say once the perennial plants are established, they're going to be mostly effective in keeping uh, cheatgrass out yep. or at a low enough population density that it's not a problem? Right, right. Yeah, yep. we've... Uh, We've done several thousand acres. Uh, I was just doing some quick thumbnail calculations here a little bit ago. And basically in uh, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, we've done a, uh, either directly ourselves or uh, was the consulting and the genetics providing entity for over 80,000 acres in the last few years. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but we have been pretty uh, rigorous in making or trying to make sure that the conditions for success were at least pretty pretty substantially in place. Right. And how many of those projects were uh, specifically a follow up to fire, and how many <laughs> were more of a you know a general interest in restoration in a situation that did not have probably about ninety percent were fire related. Ten okay. percent were just. Uh, situation related. Is that because there's public money that follows fire <laughs> or because that's when there's a good window to get the work done both. or both? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if a good example is what we've talked about with the Pearl Hill fire is, is that 
there wouldn't have been any incentive to do something there had there not been a fire. And had there not been a fire, there would have not likely been much money for it. So you, you might say they're right. a hand-in-hand -hand, uh, uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I... Like I said, I've been at this for quite a long while. Yeah, we've had a few ones that didn't turn out anywhere as near as good as we'd have liked. But we have a pretty high success rate. And we're constantly, continually uh, evaluating what are we doing and are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? And we have several of us in our team here that all have an eye for what we're looking for. Right. Um, I want to be aware of our time. We're kind of shooting for about an hour, but I'd like to talk a bit about uh, seed mixes. I would guess that you don't very often recommend single species, and you probably don't very often have 10 species in the mix. So how do you figure out what is a, an ideal seed mix for a given project? Um, back to the site conditions, you know, whether if it's sandy, if it's loamy, if it's uh, deep soil, poor soil, really dry, uh, all of those things are the elements that drive how a seed mix is configured. In most of central Washington, uh, out of the timbered area and the shrub step areas, uh, blue bunch, uh, sandberg bluegrass, prairie june grass, thick spike wheatgrass, those are our, our uh, principal components. Idaho fescue in there, if I hadn't said it already. Um, you know, we got some of those things. Uh, I have to admit, 20, 25 years ago, I didn't think there was much uh, utility for Idaho fescue in the shrub step area. And we have just one after another success with Idaho fescue. So consequently, hmm. uh, you know, you never quit learning. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That actually came up when I was visiting with Richard Fleener about this a few weeks ago. Uh, he is the most recent episode that's that's out there on the podcast. But um, yeah, Idaho fescue is one that that I would have said just from textbook learning that it would only survive on sites with a little bit more precipitation than what we have across nearly all of central Washington for sure the Columbia Basin. But but I see Idaho fescue in lots of places where I wouldn't have expected to see it and have been quite surprised by that. We've gone into numerous sites where there was no Idaho fescue uh, in, in sight. And uh, a few years later, we've got a uh, pretty nice, uh, uh, Idaho fescue is a pretty nice component of our stands. Yeah. From having it, seeded, it? seeded it. Yep. We seeded it, yeah. included it. And, and the big driver is, is, uh, is it an Idaho fescue from central Washington or is it an Idaho fescue from Montana? The one from Montana right. or Canada or whatever are, are pretty much a, a universal failure. The ones from central Washington uh, are pretty successful. Yeah. And you talk about, um, you asked earlier about species that were particularly successful at competing with cheatgrass and um, Idaho fescue is really at the top yeah. of of my list for, for that. Mm. Um, not just cheatgrass, mm. but, you know, some of the other invasive annuals that are more common in higher precip, like Japanese brome or ventanata. Um, 
Idaho fescue is one of the most competitive native species that um, we work with when it's, um, you know, well adapted for the site. And it's really good at, at maintaining and, and increasing once it's established. It's, it's, uh, we have a site uh, above Wenatchee, the Horse Lake Preserve, and it's been <laughs> yeah. really neat to watch the Idaho yeah. fescue get established and then expand um, in this site. And every time I go back, just looking in the inner spaces of these plants and seeing all of these Idaho fescue seedlings um, expand and, and um, propagate has been really cool. Um, it's a really competitive species. Mm -hmm. But the collection of which we use the seed on the Horse Lake area there for the uh, uh, Chelan Douglas Land Trust, when we seeded that, the collection came from by Antioch. And so uh, it was only, how do we say, a couple stone's throws away. Right. And, uh, and same thing up on Badger Mountain, uh, same thing in Petrified Canyon, all over those places. Uh, because, you know, Idaho fescue was so wonderfully attractive to the sheep operations of 100, 150 years ago, why it was totally excluded in many, many areas. But mm -hmm. uh, right now, uh, for us, uh, most of Douglas County and the what's called the Sagebrush Flats area in Grant County and stuff, we grow some pretty dang good Idaho fescue. So it is a, an um, amazingly impressive competitor uh, out there. So, but, you know, like I said, a uh, hundred years of intense sheep grazing because it was so palatable and attractive that they managed to deplete the, deplete the populations. Right. Along with a lot of native forbs. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, Idaho fescue is just an obvious one, but a lot of the native forbs are very obvious. You know, you, you read some of the old, history books of like the uh, uh what was it the um uh, well I imperial land company down out of shanico oregon i don't know if you've ever read the history of that man oh man uh they just had literally hundreds of bands of sheep and uh goats and horses and everything uh the, the few photographs in the uh in the book uh have uh, virtually zero vegetation anywhere in sight. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So, you know, we, we have quite a dark past on all of this sort of stuff, and it is not a quick, easy process to turn it around. Right. Yeah, there's a rancher in uh, Central Oregon, Jack Southworth, who is fond of saying, I think he's quoting somebody else who told him this, but he said, we, we have the battered remnants of native grasslands and shrublands in this part of the absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is uh, exa uh, the exact situation. You know, you have remnants, and most of the remnants, the reason they're a remnant is they weren't accessible or they didn't have water associated with them. Um, right. Have you ever climbed to the top of Steamboat Rock? No. It's a pretty nifty, inner, inner, nifty plant community up there. Huh. Yeah, that's a good idea. Get to those places that uh, you might say regular animals didn't get to. Right. So anyway, hey, um, uh, we can go on uh, with this tip for a long time because Mel and I have 
might say, tread the path a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, just a couple more questions, and I think we'll uh, we can we can call it a day. Uh, I know you're in the business of selling seed, but are there circumstances when you recommend to somebody else go ahead and go find some two dollar seed from you know whoever the seed dealer is? Yeah. Are there specific circumstances where you feel like that's a better option? Uh, Mel, do you want to respond to that? Um, yeah, I think that really depends on the goals of, of uh, the landowner. And if, if their goals for management of their land um, are to produce um, you know, feed for livestock, we generally don't recommend using natives. Um, native species um, require really, uh, you know, protective management in order to, you know, be grazed. Um, they're usually cost prohibitive. Um, so I think it really depends on the goals of the landowner. Um, and we've actually had a couple of really harsh sites, um, where uh, we've tried repetitively to get natives established and have been unsuccessful. And, and those are situations where, yeah, maybe it is time to look at um, trying to establish a cultivated variety that has had some genetic work done that allows it to establish more readily. And so I think there's a few situations where um, it's appropriate to, to go down that path. Yeah, that brings up a question that I had not written down, but was just reminded of. I've I've heard some older range ecologists say that in circumstances where there's been a long history of degradation, either from uh, overgrazing or or say, you know, agriculture that's being planted back to, you know, some version of a natural grassland, even if it's not native, that there's there's soil circumstances that won't support growing the natives immediately and they have seen it be successful where somebody plants say crested wheatgrass and you know leaves that in for 10 or 15 years and then eventually once the soils had some time to recover regain soil structure potentially some you know a slight increase in soil organic matter i'm not sure what all microbiota uh, eventually the soil becomes a little bit more habitable for the native species that have a slightly narrower range of soil conditions that they tolerate. Um, have you seen anything like that? Um, I would, go ahead, Mel. I, I would say that um, it's not necessarily like the lack of, um, you know, soil organics or, Mycorrhiza. you know, some sort of floral, floral mm -hmm. characteristic. It, it, to me, it's more just, um, compaction, um, extreme mm. rockiness, soil loss, um, yeah. because it's blown away. Um, right. and just these extremely harsh environments that, um, are, yeah, they're just really just challenging to get anything to grow in. Um, and yes, that, I think that does, um, make establishing natives that much harder. And so, yeah, there's been a couple of situations where, where we have stepped back and said, Hey, well, you know, I think it's probably time to include um, some other species um, that are a little bit easier to establish in the mix. And, we, you know, we generally would include them as a mix, not, you know, as a single species. So, you know, they can get established and, and um, help 
you know, secure the site, but then the natives can still be there and can potentially transition um, to native dominance down the road if it if it's you know um, possible to do that. And quite often in that scenario, we use that straight, sterile triticale. You've probably heard of quick guard. Yeah. Okay, we use that because it is fairly large seeded. It does uh, establish quickly in harsh sites, and we generally include it with some natives. And for the most part, we've been pretty successful with it. We've got a few instances that I, uh, come to mind that we said kind of shook our head as to how things were progressing. But for the most part, doing something like a sterile triticale as quasi-cover crop scenario uh, and, and just site stabilization uh, works pretty pretty well. We've used quite a bit of it there on that Shockey project there just south of Ellensburg. And so I don't know if you've hiked around out there at all or not, but we've got that there has been a, a good example of it. We've used it in lots of places. Um, the, the, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, um, worked for BLM in Boise, wrote quite a few papers. Mel, do you remember who I'm talking about here? He retired probably about six, seven years ago. Um, I don't. No, um, I don't. Man, it'll come to me when at the, when I'm not needing to remember it, but, uh, he used that phrase assisted succession, but. I've worked with a couple of people on evaluating assisted succession and the price tag of assisted succession means that you never do anything after you initially put the introduced species on the site. You know, you, you're right. the conversion process from uh, a well-established crested wheatgrass or Siberian wheatgrass or Russian wild rye or whatever is so expensive that nobody wants to uh, move forward with that quote unquote assisted succession. So you're better right. off so to just plan has five steps and you only do step yeah, one. Right. And then they say, Oh, too expensive. We can't do that. Uh, and, and, and the other part of that is that, like I said about some of that earliest stuff I did, you come back 20 years later and most of it's already died out. It doesn't, uh, these introduced species, uh, do not have a long sustaining uh, self-replicating uh, characteristic on the site. Um, crested wheatgrass is really, uh, in most cases, fairly quite quite uh, short-lived. Right, and that's from right. somebody that's been looking at it for fifty years. So <laughs> my t my idea of short-lived and somebody else's idea of short-lived may be quite different. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of doing this for 50 years, uh, I think both of your names are on the restoration manual that was published by the Department of Fish and Wildlife. <laughs> I think we wrote um, it. <laughs> I'm not recalling right now. That's right. What's the title of that publication? We will include the link in the show notes, but I, I assume that since you wrote it, you can recommend that to listeners as a good starting point for trying to understand these things. Yeah, there's uh, several things there. There's a few things that we kind of wish that we had said or done different, but uh, the title of it is Shrub Step and Grassland Restoration Manual for the Columbia River Basin. Okay. But that's because uh, Bonneville Power Administration, WDFW, and BLM funded it. So it's, got it. it can go beyond the Columbia River Basin. Right. I believe the NRCS also has a, a fairly lengthy seating guide that says it covers Washington and Oregon. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, do you have any knowledge of that document? I've have, looked at it. I think I've got it on my shelf somewhere because we don't generally um, uh, uh, accept or work with cultivars and uh, and or things that have been bred. Why uh, we don't really relate to that uh, kind of uh, publication. So okay. uh, we kind of stick to the uh, most appropriate genetics Native. that we can find for the site. Right. So that's, uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Like I said, we could go on for a long time on other things. The, uh, a little bit back to your thing of, uh, of the $2 seed. You basically $2 seed is going to be just wheat or barley or rye or something like that. Even the, the triticale is quite a bit more expensive than that. Uh, crested wheatgrass runs five to $6 a pound. Um, Russian wild rye runs uh, six to seven dollars a pound. So most of the things that somebody's going to want to go out there and do uh, that are, shall we say, quick and cheap, uh, are are just not going to be that quick and cheap. Mm-hmm. And potentially not uh, desirable. Will likely have a high potential of failure. Right. Or if it's cheap enough, you'll probably get a lot of weeds with it. Right. You know, there's, there's a pretty near correlation between how clean seed is and the price. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I got stories about that, too, and but we won't go into that now. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a lot of listeners that are not in the Pacific Northwest. Oh. And I wonder if you can – do you have any recommendations for uh, seed suppliers elsewhere in the West that would be – uh, reliable sources of locally adapted seed? Uh, not many. Um, granite seed does a little bit of locally adapted stuff, but they are predominantly NRCS cultivars. Um, uh, I just read about one in, uh, in we deal with a couple in Cal- Colorado. Um, oh, um, he's Southwest South, no, well, Southwest Seed is one. The other one over there that is Alex uh, Tonneson. Um, he's at Coldale. I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, Western Western Native Seed, Coldale, Colorado. And we deal with him a fair bit. And he is he's extremely knowledgeable himself. And so it is always a pleasure to work with him. And uh, And so those are some of the ones... Most of the ones like we have here in Washington, like, uh, um, uh, you know, the other ones, Landmark Seed, Rainier Seed, those kinds, they, they deal very, very little with uh, true natives. They, only, they deal principally with the ARS, NRCS cultivars. Mm-hmm. And there are circumstances, don't get me wrong, there are circumstances where a, it, if you're depending on your personal expectations for the site, there are places where uh, some of the better cultivars can quite last for quite a while. So you don't have to have the just right genetics uh, uh, to be able to get a fair measure of sustainability. If you want the long-term sta- sustainability, you have to get the right genetics. Right. So yeah, we'll finish up here. I wanted to relay one. Quick story, uh, we've a couple of us at WSU have a small grazing project with the Park Service State Parks down by Goldendale, uh-huh. and there's an area there 
where there's a um, oh an old hayfield that got seeded back to Secar blue bunch wheatgrass, yeah. and most of the site is is Secar, and there's some areas, some little draws that are in between the the arable land that never got tilled that retain whatever the native species that were there. And uh, this was a, a, a grazing project that had some specific goals on it. But the interesting thing was that when we put, when we put cows into this area for the first time, uh, the cows immediately slicked off those little draws that had native species <laughs> all the way down to the ground. Yeah. And then they walked the fence lines through oceans of, I mean, this was November. So there had been, you know, no grazing prior to that. So you've got a full year's growth, you know, plus at that point, multiple previous year's growth, standing vegetation. Uh, they walked the fence lines trying to find something else to eat and did not want to touch that sea car blue bunch. We, we, how should I say that is a familiar song for us. Hmm. We've saw that sort of situation as an example of it in central Benton County. There, what was called the McWhorter place. I don't know if you ever heard of the McWhorter ranch. I have. And, and yep. they had thousands of acres of uh, essentially abandoned wheatland that had been planted to Secar. Two things to note. There was very little good grazing use on it unless they were really pushed on it. And secondly, there was no recruitment of, of uh, new plants from the seed that was generated from the stand. Hmm. So, yep, it looked pretty wow. good on that day. But you were looking at a very small snapshot. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to thank you for your time. And if listeners are interested in getting a hold of you to talk about locally adapted seed or buy some or discuss a potential restoration project, uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of probably, either or both? Probably the best and easiest is just go to our website. They can order seed on the website. They can click on an email address for either Matt or myself. And uh, and that'll get a email response and it might say start a conversation. And then we generally work with people uh, to whatever extent they need uh, uh, from there. Okay. And your website is bfinativeseed.com? Yep. Okay. We'll include the link in the show notes, but I just wanted to say it out loud. So hopefully we've uh, been able to throw out a few things to stir some thinking. Yeah, and maybe one last question for you, Mel. What uh, I my experience with Derby Canyon natives is that you're offering quite a bit more than just grass seed, and has a, there's a little bit different niche there than than what BFI does. Can you just give a brief overview of of what Derby Canyon natives is about? Sure. Uh, well, we actually um, sell primarily container plants, um, so. Uh, a lot of riparian um, trees and shrubs um, in larger container sizes, you know, one gallon plus. Um, and we do both retail and wholesale sales. We're going to be open to the public um, probably one weekend a month um, this spring and fall and also available for, um, you know, just phone orders uh, otherwise. Um but yeah, we're, we definitely have a, a different um, market than BFI. We do sell um, some BFI seed um, from our our shop, but it's generally for you know small landowners you know that have 
quarter of an acre and they just need a, you know, five pound mix or something like that. So, um, it's, 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 it's live plants and container plants as opposed to seed primarily. Okay. We like to think we work hand in hand. We work hand in hand quite nicely with, uh, Ted Alway and Mel is just, uh, evolving forward and, uh, picking up, uh, the, the good work that Ted's done. That sounds good. This was news to me when we talked the other day, and I'm I'm excited about that. Uh, for the record, I did not receive any money for this interview. Oh. <laughs> I'm talking to, to Mel and Jerry because they know their stuff and they've been doing this for a while. So again, uh, thank you both very much for your time, and I, I think uh, we will conclude here. Okay. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thanks, Ted. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.